lithium ion makes a ton of sense for vehicles because you know its energy density to weight is pretty good but if you have a stationary battery system and battery then you're less concerned about its energy density to weight hello and welcome to the solar maverick podcast where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience i'm your host benoit thangen so let's get into it Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. The podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We are a solar development and consulting firm. Our website's www.reneuenergy.com. I'm excited in the podcast to interview Justin Bradshaw. He is the CEO and co-founder of Energy Ogre, an electricity management company that uses proprietary systems to ensure its customers are always getting the best prices on their electricity. In the unregulated Texas energy market, Energy Ogre has helped over 100,000 Texans save up to 40% on their electricity bill, over $150 million since its founding in 2013. There's a lot of interesting things that Justin discusses during the podcast. He explains the Texas renewable energy market and how it had a high proliferation of wind. But in the past few years, a lot of solar has come out live. He also talks about the Texas blackout that happened earlier this year. And he talks about how it's more distributed energy and electrification of the grid, how distribution infrastructure will be important. He also talks about how solar and wind are different from other fuel sources because it's a technology. And that's really interesting because as a technology the cost will continue to go down. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you for listening and let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to interview Justin Bradshaw. He's the CEO of Energy Ogre. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Like, I'm really interested in hearing your perspective. I think you bring a very unique perspective to the energy industry and in renewables. Being in the energy sector now, what, over almost 30 years, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like a dinosaur for sure. But I've been doing this in this space on the wholesale and then more recently on the retail side since the mid-90s. So I guess we're pushing 26 plus years. I don't always feel that old, but I guess I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, and that's amazing because you could bring a unique perspective. In the intro, we talked about your company, Energy Ogre, but it would be great to talk about what Energy Ogre does. And I know you mentioned it, talked about residential. Sure. I mean, I know that you have a very widespread audience and some of the folks that are listening are in areas where there's retail competition and some folks are in areas where there's never been retail competition. So in Texas, in the majority of the populated areas, the market opened for retail competition back in January 1st of 2002. And so the legacy utility companies were split up. And so there's a robust competitive landscape for people to procure their electricity, not just from one provider, but you know, there's a number of different providers. I think there, last time I looked, there's 140 different registered retail electricity providers. Not all of them are providing residential service, but there's a robust, you know, at any given time, there might be two or 3,000 different rate plans that are available. So we kind of went from this whole cookie cutter, you know, you get what you get and you don't have a fit to the Burger King, you know, you can have it your way. You know? <laughs> so everything's a little bit mix and match. And electricity is one of those things. I think for us, we have the absolute luxury here in the United States and in North America. You don't really think about it. It just works. And so people have never really spent a lot of time, even in these competitive markets, 
really digging into the details. And frankly, it's not terribly sexy anyway. So what we found is a lot of people didn't fully understand some of the offers that were being made available to them. There's some really kind of quirks to the way the competitive market opened here in Texas. It was done on an extremely consumer-friendly basis. So it all leans towards the benefit of the consumer. But everything also assumes that there's going to be a lot of active participation amongst the consumers. And a lot of people are just busy with their day-to-day lives. And so they get themselves into less than ideal scenarios. So we formed this business. We noticed that nobody ever 100% aligned themselves with the end user, with the customer. There were always folks in this space that were like brokers or someone that you know had an interest in putting two parties together, but they got paid for that transaction or they might have a financial interest in that transaction. And we looked at it and we said, there's ample room for us to step in as a fiduciary to basically manage people's houses like we would manage our own with all that information and do all the heavy lifting and do all the analysis and try to make it as easy as possible for them to get all the benefits of deregulation and the competitive market without having to put the time and the effort in. So that's what Energy Ogre is all about in a nutshell for folks that are in these competitive areas throughout Texas. Definitely. That's really helpful to know. And it's interesting that you provided how many third-party energy suppliers are in the Texas market. Obviously, it's a substantial amount. How does Energy Ogre differentiate from other companies in the space? I think it was great that you mentioned you act as a fiduciary based on looking at what the customer's you know, best interests are. It would be great to get your perspective on Sure. That. You know, The idea that we had is not something that no one I'm sure ever thought about before. It's just when you think about it, when it was really, really hard to do, because what happened is is that we have all these different providers with all these different rate plans, and you got to come up with a computational way to get those every one of those plans comparable on an apples to apples basis, no matter how they're constructed. So that we did, and it took us, you know, there's a lot of computational work that goes on behind the scenes associated with that. And what we're doing, there's a little bit of altruism associated with it because we just get paid by our members. We're not looking to clip a coupon in this process. We figured that allowed us to identify with the consumer that no one had done before. So we're doing something that's really hard to do, and it's probably the lowest value opportunity. It's the lowest margin business in this space. And so I don't think anyone else really wants to do it. But we're excited to do that. And it's been a lot of fun for us to have the kind of impact that we've had on behalf of our customers and saving them you know, millions of dollars since we got started. So it's good. You know, what you're doing for your customers is other than comparison of plans and pricing and things like that, is also like the Burger King example, have it your way. I'm sure your customers, even residential customers, are interested in renewables. Mm-hmm. What are like sort of your customer offerings that you provide in the renewables? The nice thing about what we do is we actually don't look at this on a portfolio-wide basis. As a fiduciary, we actually have the obligation to go in and look at what's in each individual customer's best interest. There's preferences that we put in place when someone signs up with us to say, I don't ever want to be with these guys. I had a bad experience or I don't want to be on automatic debits or I don't want paper bills. I do want renewables. You know, Based upon what the feedback that we're getting from folks, we're trying to accommodate those which as much as we can, given what's happening in the ever-changing competitive market. So we outbound solicit those types of offers from retailers on behalf of our customers on an individual basis. So as that landscape changes over time and we have more guys coming in wanting to develop more wind capacity or more solar capacity, more of those recs are available in the marketplace, 
that you see more or less competitiveness amongst the retailers to bundle those in and provide those types of products. So we actively solicit those on behalf of our customers. That's great to know. Does that make it challenging acting as a fiduciary for each customer that you can't buy like potentially in bulk maybe? Well, you know, electricity is one of those weird things, as you know, you can't buy more of it than it's actually being used. So there's a transactional efficiency in having things into blocks that are closer to transactional blocks, like a whole megawatt. But generally speaking, I don't get any discount buying 5,000 megawatts from somebody as I would from buying 50. I think this is one of the biggest things that we try to overcome with our customer base is they think about buying electricity as being very similar to like going, maybe there's a Costco or a Sam's Club equivalent where I get more if I buy in bulk or I'm going to buy more than I need or whatever. And as you know, that's not at all how power works. The amount that's needed is instantaneously made available without any more or any less. And so some of those notions don't really work that way. And so ends up being a non-issue for us. We've never really found any net value associated with consolidation. Inevitably, if you start to bundle and try to do things on a bulk basis, someone's actually going to get a worse deal than they would if they were on their own. And some folks are going to get a better deal because they're bundled in with others. And that kind of runs counter to the whole fiduciary obligation. You were talking about it a little bit more, but really it's basically renewable energy credits that are taken from the wind or solar or another type of renewable project that you're then basically purchasing and retiring on behalf of the customer and using the renewable attribute. Is that correct? Or is yeah, how's that? That's the way it actually works because no matter what people try to tell others here from a marketing strategy perspective is there's that old saying, you can't paint megawatts. So there's no way to ensure that the output from the solar installation makes its way to an end user. So it's a way for us to account so that there's not a double counting of those renewable resources and what their output is. And so it's a very efficient mechanism. It's been in place since the inception of the marketplace here. And it fits the bill and it allows us to, for the folks that want to promote and provide a value stream back to developers and operators of renewable facilities, there's that direct mechanism to allow that to happen. So it's a very efficient mechanism here that's you know consistent with operational reality. And then do you allow the customers to choose the type of fuel for the renewable energy credit? Or is that you know just a general renewable energy or is it a wind rack or for us here in Texas, obviously, if you know what the constituency of the renewable infrastructures look like, the proverbial big kahuna here was always wind. And so for us, you know, if it's renewable, it's basically going to be wind. We have hydroelectric resources here that are essentially one of the river resources. So there's no dispatch or very little dispatchability associated with the resource. And it's pretty small. And most of those are in the hands of quasi-government entities. Yeah. So they're not really kind of in the public domain. Corps of Engineers runs a lot of those. And then more recently, in the last couple of years, we've seen a real explosion for a number of reasons, which I think has actually been a net positive for us here is to have a lot of new solar projects developed. And so now we're getting to a point where there actually is enough nameplate solar capacity and enough generation of solar recs that that's probably going to be a much more feasible thing to do off into the future. So I absolutely expect that we will see that. I'm not really seeing a lot of differentiation amongst the consumers of saying, well, I want this to be solar or I want this to be wind. It seems to me that the feedback that we've received so far is, you know, we want to do our part for whatever impact that is on an individual basis. And the power side is saying, hey, we want to support these types of technologies and we want to support this goal. 
And so we want to have wherever possible a renewable plan, irrespective or technology agnostic. But it may very well be that we see more and more of that as time goes on. It's interesting to hear about the Texas solar market. I know you mentioned, Justin, like the past few years, you've seen a big proliferation of solar. Can you talk about why that has happened in Texas and about the Texas solar market in general? The solar developments came into a market environment here where they actually are in a pretty good shape. The table is kind of set for at least the original, the early entrance into that space because we actually started running into a little bit of an operational problem with massive amounts of wind capacity. And so most of our wind is very geographically proximal. It's all kind of in the same part of the state, or there's a high concentration of a lot of the wind capacity in the Panhandle and far west Texas. And so what happens is that our wind output is very kind of binary. We get a lot of it or we get almost none of it. And the place, the geography wherein that wind is predominantly located, we get a lot of you know early morning output and we get a lot of late afternoon, early evening you know, output. And across the peak of the day, you start to see you know, around noontime, one, two, three o'clock in the summertime in particular, we just don't have a lot of wind. There isn't a lot of movement there. And so we tend to end up getting close to the low point of the output in the overall wind fleet during periods of time where our load is actually building across the summer. So if you look at the outputs of what most of the solar facilities are doing, well, they're obviously they're coincident with the way demand runs. So they tend to be much more aligned with the way we're consuming electricity. And if you look at it, a lot of the wind, when it's not showing up, is right when solar is starting to pick up. And so they kind of work very complementary on the grid scale and at the interconnection level. And so it's been very easy to accommodate bringing more and more solar into the interconnection as opposed to adding more and more wind. It actually helps to make the overall renewable portfolio that's supplying power within the interconnection much more predictable. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I forgot what percentage of wind is right now in Texas compared to like the total energy mix. You know, it's constantly changing, but I think Texas has upwards, you know, we're doing some retirements and some other things. I think we have upwards of about 87 to 90,000 megawatts of nameplate capacity and over 25,000 megawatts of that is wind. We've had a very large change in the constituency of the portfolio over the course of the last 10 years. So a number of the very large solid fuel plants, a lot of our old coal plants have been retired. And we've had a consistent development push in terms of renewables, predominantly wind, over the last 10 years. And we're seeing more solar in the last two or three years. In Texas, is there like a state level incentive related to solar or is it that the basically the REC, the solar renewable energy credit is the primary incentive? So when the market originally opened, there is a renewable portfolio standard that exists for all retailers that are selling in the competitive market. But given the production tax credits on wind, we've far exceeded that. So there is a renewable portfolio standard but we just blew that out of the water. So we produce far in excess of the standard. And so it tends to not really be an issue. The Texas market, as it's currently structured, and there's some rulemaking and some activity that's going on in the wake of February of this year with the freeze and the ruling blackouts that we had here in Texas, 
to revisit the way the market will be structured. But one of the reasons it's been good is that we're an energy-only market. What's happened is that these folks on the solar side, their output tends to be coincident with demand increasing. And so there's a, a good positive price correlation between their output and what they're able to recover. So I would imagine that the solar projects achieve a premium in terms of what they're able to sell their output for relative to the folks in the wind side because they're producing at the better times of the day. You talked about the Texas blackout. Obviously, I've heard like different reasons why it happened and the governor has his own, you know, impression of like what happened. Can you talk about from your perspective, like what were the causes of blackout? Maybe what things in the future could help minimize or not have a blackout? Sounds like there is some sort of rulemaking or stakeholder review to come up with a better solution going forward. Well, you know, I think at the first level, it's really important to understand, you know, as I had mentioned earlier, we're very fortunate that we don't really ever think about how difficult it is to maintain reliable electricity supply on a cost-effective basis. And so sometimes, you know, you have reliability that you're trying to constrain from a cost perspective. And that's the first thing. It's actually amazing to me that we don't have some of these events happen more frequently, given that we're dealing with pieces of technology. You know, electricity is that ultimate just-in-time commodity, right? So it's produced, distributed, and consumed at the speed of light. And there's nothing else that we mess with that looks anything like that, maybe other than telecommunications, but the stakes aren't quite as high. So it's an amazing orchestra that happens on a day-in and day-out basis that people don't have to worry about, don't have to think about. And so we get into issues sometimes when we start really having operating conditions that are massively outside a planning envelope where you can have a series of unfortunate events that kind of cascade into bigger problems. So I think the first issue here that plays predominantly into the situation in February had to do with, you know, we're dealing with temperatures in Texas that are massively anomalous. It's just not very often that we're dealing with single-digit temperatures or teens, low teens in Houston. It is very, 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 very rare. And so that's one issue that operating scenario that we were dealing with was very different than you know what you would normally plan for. But a lot of the infrastructure that we have built here, like people think about Texas as oil and natural gas, and you know that's how we kind of roll. But there's actually... If you look at the way a lot of the natural gas production is set up in Texas, there's a lot out in West Texas and there's a lot in the Permian Basin. And then we have a lot of natural gas production, a lot of shale gas production, a lot of traditional gas production. But our pipeline infrastructure tends to run more South Texas, Houston, on up the eastern seaboard, up to Boston, New York City. You know, we're a supply area, but we tend to evacuate most of our gas in that direction. So the amount of natural gas infrastructure in North Texas is actually not very big in comparison to South Texas. And so over the years, we've retired more coal and some of these other things, and we built more natural gas that's been much more efficient. But because of the way everything is set up here, and usually it's not that big of a problem, whenever we get into very cold temperatures in Texas, we have this issue where natural gas supplies for heating start to compete with natural gas supplies for generating electricity. And so here in Texas, we have the Public Utilities Commission of Texas that does a very good job of regulating. Even though we're deregulated, they still have oversight and they're still regulating the competitive market, but they regulate the electricity and telecommunications business. And the Railroad Commission regulates the oil and natural gas business. And then the Federal Energy, the FERC, 
you know, regulates the intrastate activities that go on here. So there's always been a little bit of a disconnect between if I'm a natural gas producer and I need electricity supplies to compress my gas to put it on the pipeline. If I don't have a critical resource designation, they black me out, then I can't produce the gas that you need to generate the electricity. There's a comprehensive review that's going on today to look at all the issues. You know, when you're building some of these plants, you don't expect it to be those types of temperatures. So we don't build and put that extra expense as a general rule into a lot of our generation resources here, like we would if we were in Ohio or in Michigan, of just dealing with consistent cold temperatures. You know, it's usually not the power plants themselves that break. There's pumps that bring cooling water. And, you know, sometimes if you have wellhead freeze-offs on the production side, or we have problems where the equipment doesn't work the way it's supposed to because you're just dealing with extreme temperatures that, you know, is outside the design specification. So, you know, that's all going to be looked at. I personally would like to see the Public Utilities Commission look closely at the process that the distribution companies undertook, how they rotated those outages. I think there's probably a better way to do that because we didn't actually get into rotation. We just started, had some people that were off for extended periods of time and other people that, you know, never lost power. So, there's been some advancements in the way we bring on and off people's electricity through smart meters and some of the activity, it seems to me from the outside looking in, we were kind of doing load interruption the old way where we're turning off distribution feeders as opposed to looking at isolating the individual homes themselves. So I think ultimately, I know ERCOT got a lot of bad press, the state grid operator, but those guys do a pretty amazing job. It's like one of those things, if you never hear about them or you don't know who they are, they're probably doing their jobs just fine. You never hear about them until someone's complaining about something. But the reality is that it's probably never, ever going to be economically feasible to guarantee we're never going to have blackouts. I mean, that's in my career of over 26 years, I can recall, you know, a couple in the East, in the Eastern Interconnect, we had some stuff that was around Detroit Edison. We had a couple of complete blackouts in the Western United States that I can think of. And We've had two instances that I can think of here in Texas. So they're inevitable to occur from time to time. I think that it's very easy for people to pound the table and say, we demand 100% reliability. But if they actually ever got the bill for that, no one, I think, would be willing to pay three times, four times, five times the amount that they're paying today for the reliable electricity if they had that kind of uh, an operating margin. For sure. Yeah, that is really great perspective on the blackout and the reasons why it was caused. There's a couple of things that you mentioned that were really like smart metering, distributed energy resources, then specifically like storage, both residential and utility scale storage. Like how could that potentially in the future maybe help lessen the chance of a blackout, obviously? What's the future of renewable generation look like in comparison to traditional generation? And, you know, is a carbon-free, a net zero energy production environment, is that realistic or is that not realistic? And so my perspective has been that they're almost like you've got apples and potatoes. They're not even apples and oranges. So if you look at a traditional power plant that's running on natural gas or coal or, you know, whatever fossil fuel you want to look at, those plants have capital costs to build them. And then they have a variable cost that includes the cost of fuel in producing electricity. Today, the renewables that I'm aware of, all of them have the capital costs associated with installation. And then they have a variable cost, which is basically the maintenance, but they don't have a fuel cost. It's a major advantage in the long run, provided that you can get the capital costs to build and install these 
facilities, my view is that in the long run, they should win on costs. You know, people demand electricity when they demand electricity, and we have to be ready to produce that electricity when the demand is there. And that's one of the kind of Achilles heels around the renewable portfolio today. So I think battery technology or some type of storage technology, whether that's flywheels or, you know, kinetics or whatever that storage technology is, again, it's the same type of thing. It's a capital cost. It's unlikely that they're going to be fuel costs or any other kind of variable input costs associated with those other than negligible costs. So to me, it's a function of advancing technology. It's getting to economies of scale and production of certain of these resources that can produce on a variable cost of zero. You have to have some type of a storage technology in there to be able to make that all work. That's a robust amount of storage technology. And there's a big story down here about you know, Tesla was putting in a 300 megawatt hour battery system in South Texas. And that's great, but 300 megawatt hours is not even remotely close to what you have. You need tens of thousands of megawatt hours of that kind of capacity to really start to make that transition in a big way. So I'm excited to see the parallel emergence of some of these storage technologies, whether they're in batteries or some other kind of energy storage capability. That's where the really exciting stuff is. As a leading authority in the solar industry, life gets very busy. In addition to traveling the world as a speaker and for my entrepreneurial ventures, I'm a son, friend, investor, and entrepreneur. And when it comes to delivering a great sounding show for my listeners, I choose Podcast Laundry. All I have to do is record and send and the rest is done. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, social media graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up your time to do more of what you love like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347-871-8273 that's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273 you mentioned a great point that i never thought of where these distributed energy technologies are technologies not a fuel so inherently over time you know, they should be less costly. And obviously like storage, I think as you produce more, obviously it's going to get, you know, cheaper and cheaper. And I know you mentioned different technologies. It's pretty amazing with all the mess, these gigawatt factories, you mentioned Tesla, that it is really like lowering the cost. Be yeah, I think we're at this really, uh, sometimes I think it's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it. For sure. But I, I'm excited as just, uh, you know, being alive at this time, of the world's evolution. We have a lot of bad things going on and we have a lot of chaos and discombobulation. But the way I look at it is we're kind of at the beginning point of this major revolution technologically into material sciences. And so that's all beginning. And I'm extremely excited to see where this all goes because as I look at it, I spend a lot of time trying to research these things, particularly for the way these emerging technologies or the improvement upon the existing technologies to make them cheaper, better, more environmentally friendly, you know, less ecologically damaging to mine the resources required for some of these things. That's There's a huge amount of effort being put into that. And I think that it's inevitable that those massive efforts pay dividends. And so I think we're kind of in this really exciting time to see an explosion in technology really 
start to pull us out of solving some of these problems that we have that are fairly large-scale problems. Yeah, definitely, for sure. And it's interesting as well how you were talking about smart meters, because I think that could as well basically work with the grid more efficiently and being able to communicate, whether it be the ISO or the utility, to better manage you know, issues with demand management, demand control, which I know you're pretty familiar you know, I wasn't alive then, but back when gasoline was, you know, 25 cents a gallon or whatever it was, it was just so plentiful. We got oil out of the ground. It was cheap. It was inexpensive. We put lead in it for, you know, valves and that we were not economizing in the way we used those resources because they were just so abundant. And I think that we've kind of done the same thing in the electricity space is, you know, we have a situation where people use whatever they use whenever they want to use it, and they can kind of use as much as they want. In most places, there's a tariff, and this is what you pay per kilowatt hour. And so I think that now we're going to start to get to a point where we start to become a little bit more judicious in what we're using and how we're using that. And technology absolutely plays a huge hand in making that happen. You know, these things are not far-fetched technologies. If you talk about demand management or demand response, all those tools are out there. They've been used in different industries and other places. And now it's a function of, as these technologies start to make their way down into residential and small business and industrial types of settings, that's the future for what I see, at least here in the energy business domestically. And I think it would be great too. Like, obviously, you've been in the energy industry for 26 years. You've seen a lot of changes. I'm sure back when you started, everything was about, you know, putting combined cycle gas plants. And then now to see like all these different technologies coming. And then it's a sort of multitude of technologies that are going to fill the energy mix. And I'm sure it's like pretty transformational. It's just the beginning, as you mentioned, which is a great point that we're just really in the middle of this whole thing. I think that, you know, it's very likely that we'll see significant advancements in the material sciences around, you know, how we actually make solar cells. So we've had this massive decrease in the variable costs per watt of PV cells and PV arrays. And so, you know, I think that that whole thing will probably continue that way. And there's a, a number of kind of really interesting things that are just end up capturing more and more of that energy per square meter and advancements that reduce the cost associated with putting those in place and improving the environmental footprint associated with producing and maintaining and retiring those types of technologies. That's all coming you know, it may very well be that we'll see some new form of designs of nuclear capacity that don't work like the old stuff did. So take all those old issues. And there's a lot of push today for some of these modular designs and some of these smaller scale nuclear projects that probably have a place. I mean, just from an energy density perspective, but then, you know, storage is a must and whatever batteries those are, whether they're lithium ion types of batteries, whether they're flow batteries, whether they're One of the things when you start talking about grid scale energy storage, lithium ion makes a ton of sense for vehicles because, you know, it's energy density to weight is pretty good. But if you have a stationary battery system and battery, then you're less concerned about its energy density to weight. So that might open up other possibilities for you to find different technologies that may be using much more common materials than lithium or cobalt or some of the other things that are needed in the way we need them for transportation technologies. Yeah, that is a really interesting point to mention. And we'll see as the technologies, you know, advance what's going to be more popular. And it's interesting as well, because we're seeing obviously more electrification 
of the car fleet, you know, the president's talked about 50% electric vehicles by 2030. So that obviously is going to impact usage or generation because it seems like the homeowner will probably require more electricity. There's no question. That's a monumental challenge. And, you know, good news is that these are all solvable issues given the time and, and attention that we place on it. But there are a number of issues associated with even achieving those types of goals. Obviously, it puts a huge strain on the generation infrastructure, just the amount of supply, because, you know, one of the big concerns that I have in terms of looking at these things is we have a peak problem as it exists today at certain periods of the year, right? So here in Texas, you know, between four and six o'clock in the afternoon, we tend to have a lot of businesses running and folks get home from work. And so we actually get to our demand maximum during those periods of time. When all of us have electric vehicles, usually what's the first thing you do when you get home is you unplug your vehicle in. So you're going to add that much more demand at that time on top of it. So we definitely need to be smarter about how that all works. But one thing I think that people don't really think a lot about is, you know, if we were to actually increase that much more electricity generated because we have that much more demand, well, there's a lot of wires infrastructure that has to be built out. I don't know that there's enough infrastructure in place to support a massive increase in electricity demand, even if we had the theoretical supply available to do that at all times. So there's a lot to this. And so it'll be interesting to see how it all comes to play. But Again, that's where I think the demand management and being smarter about when we use electricity is going to play a major factor in in solving these issues. That's a great point about infrastructure, especially as generation or usage and then generation has to increase to keep up with that. And then as well, demand management. Those are really great points, Jessen. Just if you think about the distribution just to your house, Not every house has a big enough amperage service or the distribution lines have enough capacity to efficiently deliver all that. So we we do a pretty good job of building the big transmission lines as lengthy and as time consuming as that is to get those all permitted. But we're going to run into a real problem with the distribution infrastructure in certain parts of the country. A lot of obviously states and even the country are talking about 100% renewables. What do you think is the type of policies that should be there to promote 100% 100% renewables. I know Texas is a deregulated market. What your perspective is on that? I think my sense of this is that if you can get the variable cost to produce, you can get the capital costs down low enough on all these types of technologies, they're going to win on economics anyway. And so it may very well be that you can get to 100% renewables because there's an explosion. I think it's going to be a big challenge to achieve 100% renewable-based or carbon-free generation if we're trying to maintain reliability and costs the same as we have today. So it's an absolutely laudable goal. I think that we can absolutely put the right kinds of incentives in place to spur the technological innovation that whole goal is going to require. But I think it's very easy for people in the abstract to want that when they don't understand what the consequences might be to them on their monthly bill for us charging headlong into some of this stuff without fully understanding what that means. Maybe there should be more patience because it's a gradual process. And Yeah, I think that there's a, certainly a school of thought that says, you know, we have an existential crisis and we certainly don't have the time to dilly-dally with making this transition. So, and that may be part of the equation. It's just, 
I think that people have to understand what that means to them in terms of reliability and or costs. We kind of gloss over that sometimes. And I, you know, just in dealing with our customers on a day-to-day basis, there can be theoretical things that are out there. But when push comes to shove, they're interested in what it costs them to keep the lights on in their house. And so there's just a practicality associated with this. For sure. And you know, for the rec product that you're offering to your residential customers, I'm assuming it's more costly than if they got, you know, regular energy, right? Is that correct? That's a premium product because you know you have to cover the cost of those credits to compensate the providers. And like I said, there are a number of our customers that absolutely understand that there is an incremental cost associated with that. It's consistent with what their, you know, personal ethic is and what they're trying to accomplish. And so, you know, we absolutely love being able to help them accommodate that. I was curious because in other parts of the country, there's like discounts if you buy from like a community solar project for renewable energy, which maybe it shouldn't be discounted versus your... Well, it all depends on what you're discounting against. If you're already dealing with a very highly competitive marketplace, then you've gotten rid of a lot of that premium in there to begin with. You can't discount off of as low as it gets. That's one of the beautiful things of the competitive market is that it's a highly competitive market. And so, you know, by way of example, I was looking at some of the prices that San Diego Gas and Electric and PG&E and Southern California Edison have out in California for their residential customers. And I think they're in the 20 to 30 cent range without you know, one of the special plans and competitive power here in Texas is between nine to 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So it's way less than half already. And so that's kind of what we've gotten from the competitive market. Interestingly, we opened Jan 1, 2002. I think I pay less on a per kilowatt hour basis for electricity now than I did when the market first opened. There's not a lot of places where I pay less for something now than I did, you know, 20 years ago, but that's certainly the case here in Texas. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I think it would be great to understand too is your perspective on a deregulated market, which you kind of just talked about versus a regulated market. It sounds like, you know, deregulating markets because that's the most efficient way. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you can take this too far in both extremes, but, you know, the traditional regulated model is one wherein utility has a captive customer base. You get a, a regulated or guaranteed return on your invested capital. And so you justify the amount of invested capital you have to put in place to ensure reliable service. So it seems to me from the outside looking in that there's always an incentive to increase your costs, your invested capital, because you're going to get a guaranteed return. The more money you have in your infrastructure and you get a guaranteed return on it, the more money you make. My personal experience, at least what I think I witnessed over the course of time, is that the traditional regulated environment is not one that really fosters innovation. It's pretty American to like a competitive marketplace. And so I think that we tend to get best outcomes. We get a lot of innovation. We get a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. We get you know a place for people to want to really solve problems and see those opportunities. Now, that being said, there's extremes of some of that as well. And I think that's why it's appropriate. Like I said, it's not deregulated here as much as we put a competitive marketplace in store. And so the Public Utilities Commission definitely has had their eyeball on what's happened here. And there's definitely bright lines around the way the competitive market works. The downside associated with competition the way we have it here in Texas is that really nobody owns their customers for longer than two to three, maybe five years at most. So there is this question is who has the long-term resource supply obligation 
to make sure there's enough electricity in place five years from now, because it's hard to build something when you don't know that you have your customers when you're competing for them. So to this point in time, the way the wholesale market has been structured is provide ample opportunity for folks to bring new technologies, whether it's solar, wind, combined cycle, getting rid of. You're absolutely right. What we saw in the first wave as this was all starting to unfold is folks saw that natural gas power plants here were the old, massively inefficient natural gas power plants. There was a huge opportunity to put brand new technology, clean, efficient combustion turbine, combined cycle tech types of technology in place, where literally the variable, you could produce the same amount of electricity with half, you know, or in some cases, less than half the amount of fuel. And so there was a huge opportunity and we saw over 25,000 megawatts of that new technology. We basically rebuilt the generation infrastructure because of that opening on the natural gas side. And we've seen that again as prices moved higher, it provided ample opportunity for folks to come in to build wind along with the production tax credits. And now we're seeing that with solar. So to this point in time, supply and resource adequacy has not been something that has to be centrally planned. It's kind of been a feature, not a bug in terms of the way the whole market has flown out. But there's some question as to whether that's something that will hold in the long term. Sounds great, but how are we going to make sure that you know, we're building these things such that we have adequate electricity supplies you know, three, four or five years from now? And so to this point, it hasn't been a problem, but we've definitely gotten close. We've had some very tight reserve margin periods in the past. So... Yeah, and that will be interesting to see just as we spoke about before is as generation, it's been relatively flat for a long time, I would assume, but as it increases. Yeah, we've added so much. I mean, almost everything new that's come in place has been, you know, peaking capacity or kind of that emergency quick start stuff or solar. Most of the new generation has been put in place in ERCOT. If you go back and look at the interconnection requests, it's almost all solar and wind. It's almost all renewable. I mean, there's a small fraction of traditional generation, but in the end, it just can't compete. Yeah. You know, it just really can't. So I think once you start to demand management and you have folks that have the ability to shift their demand a little bit, that's just an absolute game changer in allowing more and more penetration of additional renewable technologies into the wholesale market while providing more of a reducing the reliability demerits associated with having non-dispatchable generation in there. It's interesting to hear about all the solar and wind coming online. And, you know, when I think about Texas, I think about, you know, obviously a high solar irradiance, lower land costs, larger sort of projects. I think the challenge, what I've seen from some Texas developers is it's hard to get long-term like energy contracts. So that's like the hardest part from what I, you know, as an outsider. You know, what I got back to before, it's really hard as a competitive retailer here to sign up 10 years worth of offtake when you only own your customers the average duration of contract with your customers is maybe has three years associated with it. So I think that will become less of an issue over time. And I think companies have been getting more familiar with shorter offtakes of contracts, you know, basically getting more comfortable with merchant curve or merchant risks. Right. It's been a long time. It's been since the Enron days that you had a lot of financing on a merchant basis, but you know, maybe it's like bell bottoms. It'll come back again. That's a great analogy. Bell bottoms to merchant curves, you know. There you go. There you go. (laughs) There's ample opportunity to make some money. So maybe you'll start to find some capital that gets behind these projects that way. We'll probably start seeing that more in the future. And that would be great because 
that will allow you know more generation to come online. Yeah, and honestly, I think as we start to see the install costs and you know per kW of these renewable projects get lower and lower and lower than you know the threshold of how much time you actually need. If you had a merchant solar plant available in Texas for the last 12 months, you probably would have paid for it. So had you not hedged all your output, if you were just truly merchant operating in the day ahead or even the real-time market, I suspect you probably would have covered 100% of your installation costs. Whether that's going to be the case next year, who knows? But the opportunity is certainly there. For sure. And as you mentioned, which is another great point too, is that it's a technology and over the long term, it's still going to continue to go down in cost. Right. The efficiency. So as it becomes less costly. It's obviously easier for financing to get comfortable with merchants. Right. And our podcast, the Solar Maverick Podcast, is about entrepreneurship. It would be great to get your advice. I think Energy Ogre is the second company that you started. It would be great to get like your advice that you would give to would-be entrepreneurs, what you've learned in the journey of having two companies. We call our listeners Mavericks, and a lot of them are interested in entrepreneurship. Sure. I think the good news for entrepreneurs is that not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) So if everybody did, there probably wouldn't be any opportunity to go do it. And so that's, I think, one of the blessings that I think we all have. And so anyone that has that idea or that inclination in them, I think that, uh, you know, the folks that actually pull the trigger on some of that stuff, it's a rarity. The good news is that you probably have some things that are working in your favor if you decide to take the leap to do some of those things. The way I looked at it when I built the first business, that was a pretty successful business. We sold that off in 2012. You know, I was a, an executive in Fortune 500 company and had a pretty good situation. But you know, the way I looked at it was risk reward based. You know, I really wanted to work for myself and I wanted to learn what it took to build a business. And the company that I worked at had a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit, theoretically, as much as you can in a large corporate environment. But the way I looked at it was I thought I had a unique insight or you know, potentially a unique skill set or a better mousetrap that I wanted to see if I could make work. And I looked at it from the perspective of what's the worst that can happen to me? Uh, maybe I fall flat on my face and I can probably go get another job back in the industry if worse comes to worse. I could probably still feed myself. So I didn't look at the downside as being so massive that it was not worth taking that risk, particularly for the opportunities that presented themselves. You know, when we first started that, it was right after Enron basically imploded and it blew up the merchant energy merchant space. And so there was a lot of chaos. And that was my first lesson is, you know, sometimes it's scary when, you know, you're in a business and there's a lot of upheaval and a lot of change, but man, chaos and upheaval is opportunity. And so, especially if you can bring your unique talents and insights to bear, the worst case for an entrepreneur is to find a stodgy industry that hasn't changed. You know, you're looking for any kind of change or disruption or any kind of big change, like there's always opportunity in chaos. It's one of the interesting things when I started my career in this space, it was like a lot of the guys that I learned from, they were in the natural gas. The power was a natural extension of the guys that trade natural gas and gas had deregulated at the least at the wholesale level. And it was like, I got to get in here. got to make your bones while you can, because this will all go away. And, you know, here we are, you know, 26 years later, and there's probably more opportunity, more chaos, more change in power today than there was back then. And that was deregulating it at the federal level. So that's the first thing. And two is, I realized that, you know, fear of failure was a big driver for me, a big motivator for me. 
But in the end, I think you have to work really hard. You have to have an idea. You have to be willing to change. But you also have to realize that not everything is within your control. You know, you can have the best idea and you can work as hard as you can. And sometimes you get good bounces. There's externalities that you can't really control that probably are ultimately going to be the difference between you being massively successful and being moderately successful or being unsuccessful. But the thing that I love is, you know, watching people that have great ideas. Sometimes they're too soon. Maybe it's not right for them yet, or they had a bad partner or, you know, contract or, you know, something that didn't work out right, where they just didn't get a good bounce. But I've seen so many, met so many people that got right back up from that and got back on the horse. And so it's definitely something me personally, I think it would be hard to go back to how I started my career. It's just been so much fun and I drive so much day-to-day satisfaction. I really love coming to work every day. It's never been a drag. So That's a great answer to the question. There are so many great points that you made. One of the things that stick in my mind is really this energy transition is kind of just beginning and it's still going to continue to change and evolve. And there's a lot of opportunity for a very long time, which is exciting. And it sounds like, you know, that's what got you excited. You saw an opportunity with Enron collapsing and then, you know, taking advantage of that. And the other thing too, it sounded, well, risk reward, which is the basic tenet of finance, it's better to try and fail than never try at all, which was what it sounded. Yeah, you just commoditize yourself. If you're used to doing that, you say, hey, what's my circumstance? What's my risk tolerance? Okay, I can take a chance on this. And the worst case scenario is I'm very confident and you know, I'm sure the folks that really want to do this, like if worse comes to worse, you know, I can go back into the industry or I can go dig ditches or whatever it takes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think you definitely have to believe in yourself and believe in your vision and have a support system around you is helpful. It really is in terms of allowing you to achieve what you want to. But for a lot of people, you know, just because you take a risk doesn't mean you're going to succeed. But, you know, my experience tells me that even if it doesn't work out the first time or you have a something, an impediment that shows up in your way, usually folks, you know, you're going to learn a lot. You can chalk some of those things up as tuition and go back and take another bite at that apple. Because I think that kind of spirit and that kind of insight and that kind of drive is a very large competitive advantage versus the folks that are not pushing that way. And so I think that given enough time and given enough opportunity, folks that have that drive, they're going to be successful. Definitely. I totally agree with you. And this is like great advice and suggestions. Well, this has been an amazing interview. Thank you, Jessen, for your time. If listeners wanted to learn more about you, or Energy Ogre, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm not terribly interesting, so I'm not sure you're going to find <laughs> anyone wants to learn anything more about me personally. But if you're interested in how we do things at Energy Ogre, or if you happen to be in one of the competitive areas in Texas, we have a lot of information available on our website. It's at energyogre.com. And we have some free resources there for you know consumers to understand, are they in bad shape with their existing electricity plan and just some other general information. You know, one of our big mandates is to try to educate and, you know, try to provide information to folks. It's it's like everything else. Sometimes it's just really hard to find good information. In the internet age, information is plentiful. Good information or accurate information (laughs) seems like it's harder and harder to come by. So we want to do whatever we can to help in that regard as well. So there's other resources that are available on our site. Yeah. And I appreciate Energy Ogre doing that because I looked on the website and there was a lot of great resources to understand what you're offering to customers. And thank you again, Justin. I appreciate your time. I really appreciate you letting me talk to your listeners. Thanks again. 
Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. 